This morning, though, James 1, verse 12, you think, why are you going to do a whole sermon on one verse? Well, you should check out this verse. <laughs> Let me read it for you. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It's April now, mid-April, which means it's the time of the year when students are no longer paying attention in class. <laughs> I'm not talking about middle school students or high school students. That point was passed, I don't know, in October sometime <laughs> for them. I'm talking about college students. In fact, I have a specific memory in my mind. In the middle of April when I was in college, my sophomore year, and the, it was just warm enough outside, the windows were open, and you could feel the breeze going through the room, and I had soccer practice after class, and I was thinking about that. I had work that night. I was scheming about that. I had some internships in the summer that I was thinking through and had a, a project for another class that I was actually working on during this different class. And was, you might have seemed like I wasn't paying attention, but there was a lot going on right there. I was juggling a lot of plates. Uh, I, none of them had anything to do with the professor that was in front of me at that given moment. Um, droning on about something, who knows what, macro social economic theory versus micro social economic theory in the system of governments. See, you aren't even paying attention either. <laughs> Doodling taking place, perhaps even work for a different assignment, a different class. But there's one phrase that every professor has that will get all of the students' attention immediately, even in the middle of April. You're there minding your own business, doing work, and thinking about what's next, and planning for the summer, and then you hear this phrase from the front of the room. This will be on the test. <laughs> yes, you have my entire attention, both of my ears, all of my eyes, and my heart all belong to you at this moment. What will be on the test? And you, you write it down. I loved that phrase when the teacher told me that. My least favorite phrase in the classroom is when I heard, and that will be on the test. <laughs> <laughs> that? <laughs> looking around frantically at all your friends. I don't know, they're looking around at each other. <laughs> I'm sorry, could you repeat that? And the professor's, <laughs> professor says, oh, I, have, I have office hours if you want me to repeat that. <laughs> Give up. This will be on the test, though. I love to hear that. James 1, verse 12 is one of those verses. The writer James here is telling you this will be on the test. What you see here in verse 12, this is a, really a capitulation, a summary of what you saw in verses 2 through 12. And James is bringing it all together for you. If you zoned out there, we've spent the last few months going through James 1. We've been taking our sweet time, which I don't regret for a second. But if you zoned out there for a minute or if you fell and hit your head, if you forget what is going on in James 1, verse 12 is a summary. And he lets you know in the middle of the verse that this is on the test. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in her trial, for when he has withstood the test, or the NAS might just say when he has been approved, but the, the Greek word there is the word for test. When you have gone through the test, you've turned it in and it will be graded. This verse is on the test. And I want to present it to you in a very straightforward, formulaic fashion, a picture with the whiteboard font and everything. In this life, trials plus perseverance equal blessing. That's the formula James, James is giving you. That's what will be on the test. Trials plus perseverance equal blessing. Now, it's always dangerous to take theology or Christian living and try to break it down into a formula. 
Theology can't be quantified and there's not integers that stand for different theologic propositions. So I usually try to stay away from, you know, formulizing different theological principles or Christian living. But the advantage of a formula, what this kind of presentation has going for it, is it shows you cause and effect. It shows you that A plus B equals C. It breaks down complex concepts to simple to understand and the memorable to help you embrace it. And that's what James is doing here in verse 12. He's bringing you back through the earlier nine verses and he's just telling you that you are blessed, you are happy, you are blessed by the Lord if you remain steadfast through your trials. He's highlighting the cause and effect for here, that your happiness is the effect of the cause being your trials plus your steadfastness. Now, the themes James mentions here in these verses are not out of the blue. He didn't just parachute into this. In fact, the words in this verse are all borrowed from the other nine verses in James 1. For example, test is a word that we saw back up earlier in verse 2. For you note the testing of your faith. It's the same word that's repeated in verse 12. The word trials is up there in verse 2 as well. In verse 12, if you remain steadfast under trial, and then back up in verse 2, count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. The word persevere or steadfast in verse 12 is from verses 3 and verse 4. At the end of verse 3, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. At the beginning of verse 4, the steadfastness will have its full effect. And so what's happening here in James 1, verse 12, is he's wrangling these phrases and concepts that he used in the first part of the, the chapter to bring it home to you at the end. He looks up and he sees the class looking out the window. And he says, hey, this will be on the test. Pay attention here. Now, He's telling you this. He's walking you back through this very basic concept that dominates James 1, that trials are given to you by God. In verse 2, you're supposed to count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Not if, but when you encounter trials. Therefore, your joy. That's why they are given to you here as a component a necessary component of happiness. Trials are anything that are attacking you from, from outside. Anything external to you who has its goal to make you test or to try your faith is how you would say it in English. That's why it's called a trial. As you're going through it, it's trying your faith. It's making you question the sovereignty of God. It's making you question the goodness of Christ. When something on the outside of you happens to you and it makes you say, I don't know if God is in control or I don't know if Christ is good, that is a trial. And that's what you're going through. You're supposed to count it all joy, and now you're supposed to recognize that it is a component, a basic Christian component of spiritual blessing or happiness. Attacks from outside of you, persecution for your faith, suffering despite your faith, health problems in your family, church problems in your other family, job problems, work problems, life problems. And the point here is not just that bad things happen, it's that bad things happen in particular to people that love God. Or even more precise than that, it's that bad things happen to people who love God who ostensibly can save them from trials. It's that full package deal. It's that suffering comes to those who pray and particularly to those who pray that God would stop suffering that God can end suffering. It's Psalm 22, the first half of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which should rattle your cage enough until you remember that it is prayed by the Savior himself, that, that God himself in human flesh with the human nature cries out that he's being forsaken by God. And you, and you think if the Savior can be forsaken by God, then what hope is there for me? 
Fortunately, Psalm 22 doesn't end in the middle and it keeps going. And it shows you that God is at work through those trials, making something better than those trials. You know, I have one particular food item that offends me. My least favorite food item, I think. Sour cream. I feel like it was started as a joke. And uh, I mean, it's called sour cream. It's not exactly subtle here. It's labeled sour and people buy it and eat it, I hear some people even do with it. Appalling. I find it offensive and (laughs) off-putting. However, a couple years ago, came home home from work early, came into the kitchen, and there was my wife making something with sour cream. And I thought, does does headship mean nothing in our family? (laughs) (laughs) And then... To my shock, I discover what it is she's making. She's making these scones that are just about my favorite thing in the world that she's made. She'd been making it for years, and I love them. I'd never actually watched her make them, though. And so now this is causing cognitive conflict. I'm having like a full-on midlife crisis. There's two things I know to be true. The scones are amazing, and the sour cream is awful, and my worlds are colliding here. I don't know what to do. I curl up on the couch and just whimper. It's not just that trials are good in and of themselves. That would be kind of a ridiculous thing to say. What makes them good is that they are a component into something that is good. You wouldn't celebrate a trial by itself in isolation, but fortunately, they're not in isolation. They're uningredients. They're one ingredient, one component into something that is good for you, into something that you will enjoy, namely your Christian maturity. And so this is why it's given to you in this fashion. The trials are for your joy because they're doing something. They're doing something in you. They're causing you to grow up. You come into this world as a little itty-bitty, tiny, cute baby Christian, naive and foolish, and then God puts you through trials, and the trials cause you to grow up into a big, strong, Goliath-like Christian with David's spirituality. That's what trials do to you. Trials take you from small and helpless and immature in your faith and cause you to grow into a mature kind of faith that can move mountains kind of faith. That's what trials do for you. The language back up in in verse three is that they produce this perseverance, this steadfastness, and that says steadfastness in verse four makes you mature, perfect, the Greek word teleos. It causes you to be mature, grown up. You could say it like this. God loves you too much to keep trials from you. Because if you didn't have trials, you would have a complacent life. If you had a complacent life, you would have nothing to provoke you to grow. If you had a comfortable life, you wouldn't be driven to the cross for comfort. If you had a content life, you wouldn't have a holy discontentment with your character. So I hope that you see that comfort is the enemy of spiritual maturity. Contentment with the status quo in your life is the enemy of spiritual growth. Materialism in this sense, the American dream, that kind of superficial happiness, is the enemy of the growth of Christian character. 
if your happiness is dictated by the external affairs in your life, then you are robbing yourself of Christian maturity and Christian character. And so God gives you trials to drive you into spiritual growth. But trials by themselves are of little value unless they're accompanied by perseverance or steadfastness, the, NA, uh, the ESV says. This is the word that is it's an active, aggressive word. It describes the aggressive endurance of a believer to trials. It describes the roots of a, a seedling forcing its way down into the dirt, pushing its way, grabbing hold of the earth. That's this kind of word. The deeper the roots get, the hotter it gets outside. That's fine if the roots are deep. That's this word for perseverance. The worse it is in the world, the stronger you are on the inside because you persevere. Jesus tells the parable of the, the seed in the soil where the sower throws the seed and some seed lands on rocks, gets eaten by birds or whatever, but some seed lands in shallow soil. And it grows up really quickly. You know, shallow soil is, is nice for, for growing and it can pool water very easily because the ground is too hard underneath it and so it just pools the water and the plant grows up really, really fast. I have this uh, dynamic in my front yard. Over on the side of my front yard, there's this area at kind of the bottom of the hill where the water goes down and the soil is there so hard. It's just rock solid there. I can hit it with a, a hoe or a spade. It barely turns it over and... You know, sometimes I try planting grass there in the spring and it never works. And I do all the right things. I get like the soil, the right topsoil and put it there and I put the seeds in there and I care for it and everything and it just gets really, really green and my neighbors who know better just say, stop it. <laughs> You're not, if you keep planting in the spring, it's the wrong time to plant it there because it's going to grow nice and green but it's just toying with you. You'll see how green it is in the middle of June it'll be so green and you'll think I've conquered and then August comes and it will just die. And that's what you get for planting it in the spring. You're supposed to plant it in the fall. But who remembers to do that in the fall? Not me. I don't remember. So that little grass gets there in the spring and it turns green and bright and pretty for 15 minutes and then it's dead because it has no roots. The water comes, it loves it, and then it dies. You know, there's Christians, so-called Christians that are like that. This is the seed that falls in the shallow soil and it sprouts up really, really quick. Usually this person wasn't raised in a Christian family or maybe they were but they haven't been following the Lord for the while and you know, they hear the gospel and there's this, it produces this quick response in them. Immediately their, their life is changed and they're so excited for, for Jesus and they get baptized right away and they're sharing their testimony everywhere and it's so exciting and they, they start preaching and doing all kinds of ministry. It's just an incredible time in their life and that lasts for three months. And they walk out the door again one day and you never see them again. They grew up so fast and they left because they had no roots. Understand this is what the Bible means when it talks about perseverance of the saints, which is a biblical phrase. That God gives true believers the grace to persevere through trials. And that when trials come to someone's life and they leave, it demonstrates that they were never saved to begin with. And that's why I don't like the expression, do you believe in, in once saved, always saved? I've had people ask me that. Do you believe in once saved, always saved? Well, I don't like the way that's worded because it's got a very minimalistic sound to it. That question usually comes from somebody who had an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old or 12-year-old or whatever child who make a profession of faith and now it's... 10, 15 years later and that child's not following the Lord and wouldn't even claim to be a Christian, but 
they, were, they said the prayer when they were 12, are they saved? Be once saved, always saved. And no, it doesn't, it's not the kind of Christianity described in the Bible. The Bible describes perseverance of the saints, that God gives those who are genuinely saved the grace and the strength to persevere through trials. So trials then have this purifying effect on the church, that they drive the false believers out. They drive the false believers out and confirm the faith of those who remain. You know what happens with grass in June that's all green. Most of it's crabgrass. And the sun comes in August and kills all the crabgrass. You think you have an awesome yard in the middle of June. August, you look out there and it is brown and that just reveals to you that it's not, it wasn't real grass you had. You thought you had grass. Oh, you were a fool. The church is very easily filled with crabgrass kind of Christians. They look like the real deal on the outside, but when trials come, they wither. And if you think I'm overextending this, this grass metaphor, it's the metaphor James uses up in verse 11 right there. The sun rises with its scorching heat and it withers the grass. But that's not true for the grass whose roots go deep when the seed is the result of authentic saving faith. In this worldview, every trial purifies the church. Every trial drives some false believers away. I mean, imagine what the church would look like if there were no trials in the church. I mean, it would be the place to go. (laughs) But instead, trials purify the church by driving false believers out and by confirming the faith of those who remain. And so through that lens, every trial is like a ratchet twist in the side of your face, (laughs) cranking up your smile. Not like the fake superficial Christianese smile, but the authentic, hopeful smile. Now, I mean, understand how countercultural this is. That I'm standing up here telling you, with a straight face and everything, that trials are good for you, that you want them, that God loves you so much, He'll put you through them. I mean, are you going to hear this kind of talk anywhere else in the world? Could you imagine another group of people anywhere in the world gathering together? to sing songs to a God who is sovereign and then celebrate the essential nature of trials in life to make you love God more. It's not a message of any other religion. I mean, the oncology ward at a hospital might be the closest you get. That we have to di- diagnose the cancer in order to treat it to make you better. That's as close as you get in our world to this kind of ethic. But it is the Christian ethic. It's entirely countercultural. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. It equals blessing. Believers who persevere through trials are happy. Trials plus perseverance equal blessing. And commentators love to to debate and fight about whether or not it should be blessing or happy. Most English translations render it blessed or uh, blessed is the man or blessings for the person. It is the word for happy, but in English, happy is so superficial that it's often translated blessed instead because happy implies superficial and shallow and happy is just like, you know, turn your frown upside down kind of happiness kind of thing. And that's, of course, not what biblical happiness is. Biblical happiness is mature and it's deep and it's not transitory. It is an affection, but it's not an emotion kind of thing. And, and so it usually gets translated blessed instead of happy. But honestly, blessed is so watered down in our culture now, too. I don't know what to do. You know, hashtag blessed. Bumper stickers blessed, bless this and bless that. And 
I mean, we almost need a new word for this, but I'm not allowed to invent words that the world has to use. It's part of my humility. <laughs> but notice right away that the criteria for Christian blessing here, for Christian happiness, is just radically different than what you see in the world. Trials plus endurance. So you're confronted with this notion that happiness in the church, in Christ, is not the same thing as it's defined in the world. In fact, the world, listen to this, the world defines its happiness in a way that excludes Christian happiness. Because in the world, happiness is dictated by circumstances. Problems solved, raises gained, family that loves you. But that's not where the Bible goes to define happiness. In the world, you hear people say, you know, I just need a happy marriage or I work my whole life in order to get to a place where I can finally be happy. You hear that kind of line all the time. It says if circumstances quantify happiness. It's if, of course, even in the world, they would say happiness is your own personal disposition, but it's a disposition that is based upon circumstance. How opposite the kind of happiness that you see described in the first word of verse 12. Blessed is the man. The world says that happiness is seen in the right circumstances. The Christian says that happiness, listen to this, it's not in the right circumstances, it's in the right character. The world says that happiness is an emotion that you feel. The church says that happiness is an affection that grows from within. The world defines happiness as contentment, and the church defines happiness as a kind of forward-looking expectation about what God is going to do with you. It's this teleos, it's this mature growth that's happening. So it's not about circumstances on the outside, it's about character on the inside. If you derive happiness from the world, then your happiness is fickle at best. If your happiness is based on a sports team and the sports team releases your favorite player, you go into a tailspin. Talking to you, Cowboys fans. <laughs> but trials are a way. Do you understand what God's doing with trials? He's using them to wrestle the hands of your heart off of your circumstances and onto your character. Trials is God prying your eyes and your hands and your heart and your hope off of the things external to you and on to the things inside of you, who you are, with an upward focus at who God is. And this is not just a bait and switch either. It's not like Jesus promises you a better marriage and better cars and a better life and all that and then sneaks us in at the end. <laughs> oh yeah, also trials. Come follow Jesus, he'll make your life good and your marriage happy and there will be trials. Did you hear anything? No. <laughs> I mean, this is, it pretty much leads the press release. Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is the man who does not walk with the wicked. Take his seat with the scoffers. And Psalm, we're not talking some random book here, we're talking about Psalms, you know, the book that everybody who's not really having their quiet time, when somebody says, hey, what are you reading? Psalms. <laughs> if you ever tell me you're reading Psalms for your devotional life, just know, even if you really are, I'm probably not going to believe you. Psalms begins with blessed is the one who does not walk with the wicked. And so already you're getting this Christian ethic defined separately from the world. And Jesus leads with that in his ministry too, the Sermon on the Mount. That's how he starts, with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor. And you can almost picture some church growth consultant coming up to Jesus saying, oh, Jesus, that's not what you want to lead with. 
I mean, if, the, if you do want people who are poor in spirit, keep that for the end. You don't want to start with that. And people hear that, they're not going to, no, you're not going to have more than 12 people across the sea if you keep talking like this. Jesus follows it with blessed are those who mourn. Church growth expert, heart attack. <laughs> blessed are those who mourn, don't talk like that. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. I mean, we live in a world that does not say the meek are happy. We live in a world that say the strong and the powerful, people who can muscle their way to success, people who can get their own way, they are the happy. And Jesus says, no, the meek are happy. Blessed are those who, are hu- who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who hunger and thirst? Are you kidding me? Try that with your kids next time. They say, dad, I'm, I'm so hungry. I'm starving to death, actual death. I'm so hungry. Blessed are you, child. Wouldn't want to rob you of that blessing. (laughs) Blessed are those who are persecuted. I mean, this one just about takes the cake, doesn't it? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he ends it with, blessed are you when people insult you and say all kinds of things that are untrue about you. Have you ever had one person say one thing untrue about you? And when you, when you hear it, do you go, praise Jesus. <laughs> I'm so happy right now. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> so it's not like Jesus went around saying, with faith in him, you will get a better marriage and a better car and a better life and a bigger retirement fund. He went around saying, with faith in him, you will be blessed with persecution and people saying things that aren't true about you and spiritual mourning and spiritual poverty. As I said, this is the opposite of the way the world views happiness. This is the opposite of even the way Christian TV presents it, right? You know, you can actualize your faith. You can actually picture something and if you have enough faith, you get it. You can claim your healing, run into your healing kind of thing. Last night I was leaving the pool after my daughter's swim practice with another pastor in the area and we were joking together. We walk in the parking lot and he puts his arm around me and says, okay, you got to pray with me. We've got to actualize our, our Mercedes right now. If we have enough faith, it'll be a Mercedes. And no Mercedes, no Mercedes. That's what Christian television says. And the world would say that that would make you happy if it actually happened. The problem is it doesn't happen. But Jesus and James and Psalm 1 and just the Bible tell you that that kind of earthly blessing comes through persevering through trials. Persevering through trials where God wrestles your heart towards him. Now, we need to stop acting like what happens outside of us dictates the happiness inside of us because that's just not true. What dictates the happiness inside of us is our own character, which is formed, of course, by the trials that are going on outside of us. But the trick here, otherwise the sermon could end here, but there's a big part that's missing here, is that James says this test isn't due now. This is on your final exam, but it's not due right now. In fact, he says that this test is not turned in until the end of your life. And so let me change the formula a little bit. Instead of in this life, this is what you get. How about this? In the next life, trials plus perseverance compounded or magnified or multiplied by your love for God is what leads to eternal life. And if you go through the rest of the verse, that's what you see. You remain steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, the, the love him is not chronological here. The love him is the factor on the first side of the equation. It's when you withstood the test, when you turned in the test, 
You hand it to the grader. The grader puts his seal of approval on it and rewards you with the crown of life, which you receive because earlier you had demonstrated love for God. And so the real formula in the future is trials and perseverance magnified or amplified or compounded by love for God is what manifests your eternal life. God approves of your trials. And you might think, why would God approve of trials? Can't God stop trials? Why would he approve of them? Why would he grade them well? Because understand, the point of this life is to magnify the glory of God while you live. It's to delight in God's glory while you're alive and to delight in it in such a way that other people see the glory of God through how you live, which can only really be accomplished through trials. The wealthy person magnifies the worth of his wealth, but the person who goes through trials magnifies the worth of the God who sustains them through their trials. So the Christian can be like Peter, who leaves houses and lands to follow Christ, and so Christ is glorified. He's like Job, who puts the devil to shame by clinging to his integrity plus the Lord over and against his health and his friends and his family. Or you're like Moses, who considered the treasures of Pharaoh's family and Pharaoh's household not even worth comparing to the surpassing joy and value that comes from being mistreated with God's people. So in all those situations, those people magnify, amplify, multiply the glory of God in their life. And by the way, all those people understand what true joy is. There's true joy, true joy with Job and with Moses and with Peter, but only when there's true sacrifice and true perseverance matched with true love for God. And that's the component here. There has to be the love for God. I mean, a monk can persevere through trials, but it doesn't result in eternal life because it's absent love for the Lord Christ. So marvel at the fact that God is actually glorified through you loving him while he's directing you through suffering. Oftentimes we think we'd be like Job when in reality we're like Job's wife and we think I can love God and I can persevere through trials but do I have to actually love God for the trial while I'm persevering through it? That's why Job's wife says, hey, curse God and die. He's only giving you bad things. And we scoff at her, but that's the truth that's in a lot of our hearts. And that's where James 1.12 confronts you and says, no, you rejoice in your trials, you persevere in your trials because you love God. People often say that suffering disproves God's goodness or even God's existence. It's not an exaggeration to say this is probably the number one argument for atheism, that there's bad things in this world. And, you know, Christians can kind of scoff at that, but you have to appreciate the logic for a second. If God is all good and he's all knowing and he's all powerful, then why are there bad things? Either God is not all good or he's not all knowing or he's not all powerful or some category is off here. It's such a common argument against the existence of God. There's even a name for it, theodicy. Not Homer, Iliad, Odyssey. No, not theodicy. It's one word. And it's the logical construct that goes around how to answer that question. You could put it this way. Do you prove the existence of the sun by looking out your window at the sun? Probably not. There's a simpler proof of the sun's existence, namely the fact that you have a window. <laughs> you wouldn't have put a window in your house if there wasn't something to look at on the outside. Do you follow me? So you don't even need to look through the window to prove that there's something outside. Just the fact that you have one is evidence that there is something outside, although you, you wouldn't have gone through the work to put it there. 
the existence of trials is in and of itself evidence that God's glory is on the other side. That's why you persevere through the trial, because God is directing your life through it, and there's something beautiful on the other side. So far from being a proof of God's, the fiction of God, the existence of trials actually proves the opposite, that God is working in your life for his glory. Trials no more disprove the glory of God than nighttime disproves the existence of the sun, honestly. It's kind of a silly argument. As God is glorified through your perseverance through trials, that yields to the crown of life. And that's that middle phrase in verse 12. You'll receive the crown of life. The Roman athlete would run his race. He'd be crowned with a, a wreath at the end. They didn't get the, the gold medals like they do now. They would get a wreath, and that's what the readers of James would have pictured in their minds. It's the reward. And that reward that you get for persevering through the trial is eternal life. The marathon runner pushes through the cramps and he pushes through the dehydration and he pushes through feeling like he's fainting and all of his endurance, he pushes through the pain and he sweats through it so that he can win the race, so that he can finish the, the race and claim the prize. The Christian perseveres through life because of his love for God, rooted in his love for God. He goes through the trials so at the end of it, he, he sees, receives the approval of the judge and inherits the crown of life. The crown of life is eternal life. This is a pass-fail test here, in other words. There's not A, Bs, and Cs. There are degrees of rewards, which we'll get to later in James. This right here is just pass-fail. Do you recognize that God is sovereign over your trials and he's using them to demonstrate your love for him? You know, the test doesn't test the professor. He knows the answers. The test tests you. Receive trials in your life as evidence, as the test to reveal your faith. Imagine what the church would be like. Listen, what would the church be like without trials? First of all, there would be a lot of people here who are not authentically saved. Secondly, there would be a lot of people here who are immature believers because they're not growing in their faith. Thirdly, there would be a lot of people here who don't know if they're saved or not because they've never had trials give them the opportunity to prove their faith. So they don't know. Basically, it's a lot of confusion. Here's another danger if we had no trials. Jesus says, if you love your life in this world, you will lose it in the next. But if you hate your life in this world, you will gain eternal life in the next. John 12, 25. If there were no trials, you would like this life and you would love this life and you would lose the next life. So you could put it this way. God gives you trials so that you hate your life. <laughs> but the rest of that verse, if you hate your life, you will gain eternal life in the next. And that's the million dollar question, isn't it? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. Jesus rebukes Nicodemus. When Nicodemus comes to him, Jesus answers the question Nicodemus didn't even ask and say, unless you're born again, you cannot have eternal life. John 5, 24, Jesus says, whoever believes my word has eternal life. John 6, 27, Jesus says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but labor for the food that gives you eternal life given to you by the Son of Man. And of course, it's a future element to it, but you experience the joy now because of John 17, verse three, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent.
Lord, we're thankful that we have eternal life and we experience it now that you've proven it in our hearts now through the testing of our faith. We're thankful that you cause roots to grow deep, that new birth comes from you. The seed has been scattered and it takes root in our hearts, Lord. And so we pray that our roots would grow deep so that the sun will come and just confirm our faith. We pray that you would cause us to grow into the image of Jesus Christ, mature believers, unmoven by the winds of change in this world, unshaken by circumstances, rooted and grounded in you. We know the greatest mystery here is how sinners can have eternal life, and we see that through our Lord and Savior dying to pay for our sins, rising from the grave to prove that his physical death did not terminate his soul. From that, Lord, we learn that when we are right with you, we can have eternal life. As you conquered the grave, we will live forever with you, but only through our faith in you. I pray for anyone who's here today that has never given you their life. They have fought against trials in their own strength. They have refused to trust you or bow the knee to your sovereignty and your goodness in their life. I pray that they would do so this morning. They would humble themselves, confess their sin to you, and receive the courage and the confidence that comes from knowing that you have conquered the grave And so you can work through trials in our life. We're grateful for this morning. We give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.